Well, I have one more sermon in this series, but today we come to the dramatic conclusion to Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. It literally ends with a bang. It ends with a crash. Now, over these many months, we have seen how Jesus has laid out for us his vision for the good life. So if you want to thrive and flourish as a human being, if you want to live a truly great life, this is it. And now, everything has been leading up to this moment. This is what it's all been about. Jesus now drives his points home, and he makes it very, very practical. He makes it clear that his teaching is not to be praised, it is to be practiced. It is not to be commended, it is to be carried out. The whole purpose of this teaching is that his word would come into our lives and transform us, revolutionize us from the inside out. But let me just say one thing at the outset. It might seem at first that the way in which Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount contradicts the way in which he begins. It seems as if Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount with a strong note of grace but ends with a strong note of obligation. It seems as if he begins with a note of blessing, blessed are the poor in spirit, but that he ends with this note of duty, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them. So it might seem as if Jesus begins with God and what he has done for us, but that he ends with us and what we must do for ourselves. But what I will show you is that this is only an apparent contradiction. Because no, the Sermon on the Mount is a message of grace from beginning to end, from start to finish. But we do have to respond to this message of grace. See, as I've said over the, uh, over the last several months, is that the Sermon on the Mount is not telling you what you need to do in order to enter the kingdom of God, but rather the Sermon on the Mount is describing who you become by God's grace, when the presence and power of God come into your life. But you have to respond to this grace. You have to make a choice. Are you for Jesus or are you against Jesus? We might prefer to sit on the fence, but it's impossible to remain neutral. A refusal to choose is a decision in itself. So we have to decide, what are we going to do with this word that we have heard? So here's how I'd like to sum up Jesus' conclusion to the greatest sermon ever told. It doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter what you hear. All that matters is what you do. So I'd, look, I'd like to look at those three points in turn. It doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter what you hear. All that matters is what you do. So let me invite you to open up a Bible to Matthew chapter 7. Our passage is found on page 812 in the Pew Bible. You can also find it printed in your order of worship. I'll be reading Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 27. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. 
And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. This is God's word. It's trustworthy, and it's true. And it's given to us in love. Will you please pray with me? Father, we acknowledge that apart from you, these words would remain nothing more than letters on a page. And so we pray that by your spirit, by your grace, the same spirit that once inspired these words might illuminate them now for us so that your word might catch fire and burn within our hearts, leading us to a real encounter with Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Well, first of all, Jesus warns us against a merely verbal profession. And then secondly, he warns us against mere intellectual knowledge. So the first thing he tells us is that it doesn't matter what you say. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, on the one hand, of course, a verbal profession of faith is indispensable. The Apostle Paul, for example, says in Romans 10, verses 8 and 9, that we must confess with our mouth and believe in our hearts that God raised Jesus from the dead. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, he says that no one can declare Jesus to be Lord apart from the Holy Spirit. So a verbal profession of faith is necessary. And yet, we all know, talk is cheap. People can say anything. What really matters, what is truly decisive, is whether or not you mean what you say. And so here Jesus offers what may be one of the scariest warnings in all of Scripture in verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And notice the way that Jesus describes how some people will speak. They will say to him, Lord, Lord. Now, what do you notice about that address? Well, first of all, it's polite. It's very respectful. More than that, it's orthodox. It's theologically sound. It's doctrinally correct. Jesus is the Lord. And further, it's earnest. They repeat his name twice, Lord, Lord. And they even claim that they have done ministry and spectacular deeds of service in his name, but it was all a sham. They may have professed Jesus with their lips, but not with their lives. The Apostle Paul says something very similar in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. See, Paul's saying it's possible to prophesy, it's possible to preach, it's possible to understand all mysteries and have all knowledge. It's possible to have faith, faith that could move mountains. And it's possible to engage in Christian acts of charity, to give away everything you have, to deliver your body over to be burned, to die for your faith as a martyr. You can do it all, yet without love. And if God is love, well, then he's saying you could do it all without God. You could do it all without Jesus. You could do it all without 
the Holy Spirit. And so what Jesus is telling us on the Sermon on the Mount is that good theology, doctrinal correctness, orthodoxy, knowing the right things to say will never save you. Because it may just be an attempt to justify yourself. You may just be trying to put God in your debt by saying the right things. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of the, the kid who goes to the Christian camp and prays the sinner's prayer every year just to make sure they're covering all the boxes and to see if maybe this time it's going to stick even though nothing has ever changed in their lives. But Jesus' words also might help explain a phenomenon that I'm sure we've all experienced to one degree or another. Have you ever been disturbed? Have you ever been disturbed by prominent pastors who seem to have effective ministries, but then they fall from grace? Their words were true. People's lives were really changed, except for their own. And we wonder, well, how could that happen? How could that possibly be? And the answer is because God is sovereign. God can do whatever he wants. God can use whoever he wants to accomplish his good purposes in the world. Do you know how the old Puritans used to put it? They used to say that God can strike a straight blow using a crooked stick. God can strike a straight blow using a crooked stick. He can use anybody to accomplish his good purposes. He doesn't need us. And I have to tell you, that's what makes this passage so frightening for a minister to read. Just because God might be using me in ministry doesn't mean anything. So I have to constantly check myself. I, I have to search my own heart. I have to make sure that I'm professing Jesus not only with my lips but with my life. And trust me, I do this every day, perhaps multiple times a day. Because I don't ever want to hear these words. These words that Jesus utters in verse 23. I never knew you. See, it doesn't really matter what we say to Jesus. What ultimately matters is what he says to us. Verse 23, and then I will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evildoers. So the question that we all, all of us have to ask ourselves is whether or not our relationship to Jesus is polite, respectful, orthodox, theologically sound, earnest, and yet superficial. See, if we're hard-hearted, if we're complacent in our faith through these words, Jesus just takes a sledgehammer to our complacency and our hard-heartedness. We can't stay where we are. So he warns us against the danger of a merely verbal profession, but then he also warns us against mere intellectual knowledge. It doesn't matter what you say, and it also doesn't matter what you hear. Verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them is like a foolish man who builds his house upon the sand. Now, what do you think most people think the gospel is? What do you think? Most people assume that the gospel is if you affirm the 
required minimum set of doctrines about the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, then God will forgive you and take you away to heaven when you die, leaving the rest of your life unchanged. I think that's what most people think the gospel is. It's just a get-out-of-jail-free card. But that's not the gospel. It's not enough to merely hear Jesus' words, to even agree with Jesus' words, or to give assent to Jesus' words. Mere intellectual assent to a set of doctrines gets you nowhere. Do you realize that James chapter 2, verse 19 says that even demons believe? <laughs> even demons believe in God. So mere intellectual assent to belief in God doesn't get you anywhere. You're on the same level playing field as a demon. So it's possible, therefore, to hear Jesus' words, to, to read the Bible, to go to church, to listen to sermons, and, and even to agree with what you're hearing, and yet still be lost. C.S. Lewis once said that sitting in a church, sitting in a church no more makes you a Christian than sitting in a garage would make you a car. And the whole reason, therefore, that Jesus lived and suffered and died was not to give you a get-out-of-jail-free card. No, it was to revolutionize and to transform this life and the next. So it doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter what you hear. All that matters is what you do. So what does it actually mean to be a Christian? What does it really mean to follow Jesus? I, I once heard another pastor use these two analogies. Let's say you apply for a job and you get a position at the greatest company in the world. And the CEO to whom you will directly report is not only a creative genius and a brilliant leader, but the CEO is committed to your personal development. And the CEO tells you, look, this is what I want you to do. I, I want you to work on this project. I want you to develop these skills. I want you to serve this client. I want you to lead this team. And you say, nah, I want to be on staff, I want the title, I want the paycheck, I want the direct reports, I want the office, I want to receive all the benefits, but I don't want to do what you're telling me to do. I'm going to do my own thing. How do you think that's going to go? Or the Super Bowl's coming up, so here's another analogy. Let's say you try out and you're drafted to the greatest team in the history of sports. And the coach is not only a strategic mastermind and an inspiring figure, but the coach is committed to your personal success. And the coach says, look, this is what I want you to do. Do these exercises. Practice these drills. Study this playbook. Practice these plays. Lead this team. And you say, nah. I want to be on the roster, I want to wear the uniform, I want to get all the endorsements, I want to win the ring, but I don't really want to do what you're telling me. I'm going to do my own thing. How do you think that's going to go? Now, it's comical, but that is the way in which we often respond to Jesus. You see, it's not enough, therefore, to admire Jesus' words, to appreciate Jesus' words, to even meditate and reflect on Jesus' words. You have to do them. We have to do them. We have to put them into practice. So at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus famously draws this contrast between two different kinds of people. There's the wise man who builds his house upon the rock, and then there's the foolish one who builds his house upon the sand. 
And here's how I would sum up Jesus' words. Everybody builds a house. Everybody faces a storm. But only one foundation will stand. Everybody builds a house. Everybody faces a storm. But only one foundation will stand. See, first of all, everybody builds a house, which is really just another way of saying everybody builds a life. We're all trying to build a good life, a great life for ourselves. We're building a house every day through the values that we set, through the relationships that we prioritize, through the choices that we make, through the people that we listen to. And every day we're asking ourselves questions. Well, how am I going to spend my time? How am I going to use my money? What words will I choose to speak? What thoughts will I entertain? What actions will I take? Where am I going to find meaning and purpose in life? What influences are going to mold and form and shape me? See, whether you realize it or not, we're all building a life for ourselves. Everybody builds a house, but everybody faces a storm. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when a storm is coming. And perhaps you've already been hit by it. As a pastor, I can tell you, looking at a room filled with this many people, I guarantee it, some of you are already in the eye of a hurricane. And just think, there's so many ways in which we could tease out this metaphor. You've made a shipwreck of your love life. Your marriage is on the rocks. Your career is sunk. Maybe you feel like a castaway. You've lost all your friends. You've lost the person who is closest to you. You feel alone and adrift at sea. Or maybe you're engulfed in financial problems. There's no way you could ever bail yourself out of your debt. Or you've got a kid. You've got a kid who is drowning in depression or anxiety or addiction. Everybody faces a storm. A storm is coming. But you know what? That's not ultimately what Jesus is talking about here. He's not talking about the storms of life. He's talking about the storm of judgment. I hate to break it to you, but every one of us is going to die. We are all going to die. And that will be the day when we discover what kind of a house we have built. But the only problem is that on that day, it'll be too late. It'll be too late to make any changes. So everybody builds a house, everybody faces a storm, but there's only one foundation that will stand. Your house will either stand or it will fall. And if it falls, Jesus says, great will be the fall of it. Great will be the crash. If you build your life on money, sex, or power, on status or recognition, career success or critical acclaim or even good things like family or service to, to, to others. It's all just sand. It will all just wash away. It will not hold up underneath the strain. It will not stand the test. Your house will fall and great will be the crash. The only foundation upon which you can build a life is the rock. And notice something. Jesus doesn't say a rock as if there's multiple options. The only foundation upon which you can build a life is the rock, and the rock is Christ. The only foundation upon which you can build a life that will last is Jesus, which means you can't just listen to Jesus, you can't just admire Jesus, you can't just agree with Jesus, you have to do what he says. 
You have to take to heart what he said. Take it deep into your heart and life and make that the center out of which you operate. But you know what? That makes this, that makes this, the Sermon on the Mount, not only the greatest sermon ever told, but the most dangerous sermon ever told. Because you see, this sermon will polarize you. It will either pull you closer to God or it will show you how far away you really are. It will push you in one direction or the other, but it will not leave you alone. So I should have, I should have warned you. This is the most dangerous sermon you could have ever heard. Because now that we have heard Jesus' words, we're responsible. We're responsible for how we'll respond. Either you will become like the wise man who builds his life upon the rock by doing what Jesus says and you will find life. Or you'll be among the foolish who hear what Jesus says, maybe even nod in agreement, and yet ignore it. But we ignore it at our peril. So what are we supposed to do? Jesus said we had to count the cost. We have to count the cost of what it might mean to actually found our life on him. What might it cost us to to truly give ourselves wholeheartedly to him? It might cost us something in the way of relationships, or it might cost us something in the way of habits, maybe something to do with, with money or sex or addictions. It might cost us something in terms of how we use our words. We can't hold on to our anger anymore. We're gonna have to leave our grudges behind. So we have to count the cost, but a lot of people talk about that, counting the cost in order to follow Jesus. Do you know what people don't talk about? They don't talk about the opportunity cost. What will it cost you not to follow Jesus? What will it cost you to remain enslaved to your own ego and pride and greed? What will it cost you to remain enslaved to image and reputation, to anxiety and regret? What will it cost you to remain enslaved to your desperate need for safety and security, for comfort and approval? What will it cost you to remain a prisoner to uncontrollable habits, unresolved fears? What will it cost you to remain a prisoner to unfulfilled longings for love and acceptance? See, when you stop and consider what Jesus is really offering, you realize You can't afford to say no. You can't afford to say no to what Jesus is offering because Jesus is offering wholeness. He's offering forgiveness. He's offering us freedom from from guilt and regret and shame. We can be forgiven for all of our mistakes and failures, for all the stupid things that we've done. And trust me, I've done a lot. But he can forgive them all through his sacrificial death. He promises to heal us and restore us. Why? Because he was broken on the cross. He promises to embrace us and to accept us. Why? Because he was forsaken on the cross. In Jesus, we find everything we need, a new identity, a new community, a new destiny, a new mission and purpose in life. And down through the centuries, countless people, millions of people have suddenly found in Jesus everything they were ever looking for And they just didn't realize it. A whole new outlook on life, a reason to get up in the morning, a reason to keep fighting. He offers it all to us freely by his grace. And therefore, when we understand what he's showering upon us, we we suddenly realize, I don't have to be alone. I don't have to be ashamed. 
And I don't have to be afraid anymore because he's conquered even death. So don't just count the cost. Consider the opportunity cost. You can't afford to ignore his words. You have to say yes to him because of what he's offering. So as we close, here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to offer an invitation. I'd like to offer an encouragement. And I'd like to offer a reminder. See, first of all, I'd like to offer an invitation. Maybe you grew up going to church. Maybe you didn't. Maybe you call yourself a Christian. Maybe you don't. Maybe you've heard Jesus' words and you even agree with them. But in your heart of hearts, in your heart of hearts, you know that you have not built your life on Jesus. You have not made Jesus the center of your life. And let me just tell you, it is only as you make Jesus the foundation of your life that you finally discover, perhaps for the first time, what it really means to be creative. Because you're not trying to fit in, you're not trying to win somebody's approval, you're not trying to to gain acceptance. Finally, for the first time in your life, you know what it means to be creative. Finally, for the first time in your life, you know what it means to be free. Finally, for the first time in your life, you know where you belong. Finally, for the first time in your life, you know what it means to be loved. You've got to make Jesus the foundation of your life. So I want to invite you to make it real. Interestingly, a number of people over the last few weeks have indicated that they'd like to be baptized for the first time. And I'm so excited to hear that. We want to come around side you and, and celebrate that moment in your life. And so here's what we're going to do. We're about to begin the season of Lent. And so during this 40-day period leading up to Easter, we're going to prepare those who are interested to be baptized during the months of April and May as we celebrate the Easter season. And so if you know that other people are going to be baptized too. That, that might help you overcome that sort of barrier to entry to say that you'd like to be baptized too. So here's your chance. There's no time like the present. If you would like to make Jesus the foundation of your life, if you'd like to be baptized, then tell me, tell Chris, tell the members of our prayer team after the service, tell anyone on our staff, tell any of our elders, deacons, or trustees, tell the elevator operator, I don't care, tell anybody, they'll get the message to us. But take the opportunity, or perhaps you've already been baptized, but you realize that you need to commit yourself to Jesus, or maybe you need to recommit yourself to Jesus. Well, here's the opportunity, let us know. We wanna mark this occasion in your life as you make it real as you center your life on Jesus, as you make Jesus the foundation of your life. And for those who may be concerned about this, let me also just say that the way in which we baptize babies is different from the way in which we baptize adults at Central. So if you are an adult, if you're a student who would like to be baptized, I can make this pledge. I promise, I promise that when we baptize you, I will not hold you in my arms (laughs) and I will not carry you down the aisle as we sing Jesus Loves Me. We do adult baptisms differently around here. But take advantage of the opportunity. Don't be among the foolish and ignore Jesus' words, but rather make Jesus your foundation. Build your life on him. 
So that's my invitation. But then secondly, let me offer this reminder for those of you who are Christians, for those who are seeking to hear Jesus' words and to do them. Let me remind you that you can't build a house half on the sand and half on the rock. It doesn't work that way. But when it comes to faith, that's what a lot of us want to do. We prefer to say, well, maybe a little bit of devotion, a little bit of sacrifice, a little bit of commitment, a little bit of surrender, a little bit of generosity, but when I feel like it. I mean, I could use a little bit of God's help, but not too much because I want to remain in control of my life. But it doesn't work that way. To make Jesus the foundation of your life means that you're saying, I realize, I recognize that I'm not wise enough. I'm not wise enough to know how my life should go. Only he does. So you've got to base your life completely on Jesus. You've got to base your life completely on Jesus' words. You can't just say, well, I like what Jesus has to say about honesty and integrity and prayer and loving your enemies, but I'm not really going to pay too much attention to what he has to say about sexuality or materialism or, or how I use my money. But don't you realize that's building half of your life on the sand and half of it on the rock. And you know what's going to happen? It's going to fall apart and great will be the crash. You got to be all in. You got to be all in or you're not in at all. You have to build your life completely on Jesus. He has to be the one and only foundation. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground, all other ground is sinking sand. But then finally, let me offer this encouragement. I said at the beginning that it might seem as if the Sermon on the Mount begins with this strong note of grace, but then it ends with this strong note of obligation. And it might seem now as if it's, it's all up to us. We've got to listen and, and obey Jesus' words in order to build a life for ourselves. That's how religion works, but that is not how the gospel works. I mean, almost every other religion, almost every other philosophy is essentially the same. Every other religion tells you this is what you need to do so that you can reach God through your own striving. But Christianity is the opposite of that. Christianity is not about you reaching for God. It's about God reaching for you. No amount of striving, no amount of effort, no no amount of obedience on our part is going to do any good. We can't reach our way up to him. He has to come down to us. So do you realize what separates Christianity from every other religion, what, what makes Jesus different from every other founder of every other faith is Jesus is the only person, he's the only person who said, you can't do it. You can never reach God through your own striving. I have to do it for you. I have to live for you. More than that, I have to die for you. Who else says that? I had to die for you in order to make it possible. Which means that all of our doing is really just a response to his grace. All of our doing is preceded and enabled by his prior action. Even the best things that we've done, even our greatest accomplishments, are as nothing. They're as nothing compared to what he's first done for us. So what is our hope? What is our confidence? It's not in our profession of faith. It's not in our obedience. 
Now, our hope lies simply in Jesus' call. Dietrich Bonhoeffer understood that. This is how he sums up the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. Who will pass the test and who will not? The answer lies in the words of Jesus to the last of the rejected. I have never known you. Well, here we are at last. Here is the secret we've been waiting for since the Sermon on the Mount began. Here is the crucial question. Has Jesus known us or not? There's nothing left for us to cling to, not even our confession or our obedience. There is only his word, I have known you. I have known you which is his eternal word and call. So the end of the Sermon on the Mount echoes the beginning. From beginning to end, it is always his word and his call and his alone. If we follow Christ, cling to his word, and let everything else go, it will see us through the day of judgment. His word is his grace. What is our hope? What is our confidence? It doesn't lie in our confession. It doesn't lie in our obedience. It lies in his call. In John 10, Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd. He knows his sheep. Jesus knows you. And he calls you by your name. All you have to do is listen to his voice. Everybody builds a house. Everybody faces a storm. Only one foundation will stand. It doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter what you hear. All that matters is what you do. But all of our doing is merely a response to what he's already done. We're simply listening to the voice of our good shepherd. And that is what makes this the greatest sermon ever told, a message of grace from start to finish, from beginning to end, because his word is his grace. Let's pray. Lord God, save us from a merely verbal profession Save us from mere intellectual knowledge. Help us to build a house. Help us to build our life on the only foundation, the rock, Jesus. The only foundation that will stand. Help us to listen to you and to do what you say only because of what you've already done for us. Help us to see that our response is simply a response to your grace. Give us the courage, give us the strength, give us the conviction to count the cost, to consider the opportunity cost, and to follow you wherever you lead. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.